conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own my special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we spend the hour showcasing muckraking journalism. We're joined by Will Carruthers and Peter Byrne. We'll talk about a recent expose published in the Northern California Bohemian, the Alternative Weekly, that exposes how two press Democrat owners finessed a real estate deal in a local California town. Later in the program, I continue my conversation with journalist Peter Byrne when we talk about the challenges of native advertising and how increasingly news outlets become nothing more than PR brokers for their ad clients writing stories disguised as news that are really ads. Stay tuned on the Project Censored Show for an hour on muckraking journalism. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we welcome back independent investigative journalists Will Carruthers and Peter Byrne. We're going to be talking about a story that may seem specific to Sonoma County in Northern California, but it's actually a story that, well, unfortunately will look like a blueprint for what happens in many other metropolitan areas. This story is a series starts with railroaded behind the scenes of Smart's freight takeover, and the Smart is a Northern California commuter train. Will Carruthers did a series of pieces here for the Bohemian. Will is a news reporter for the Pacific Sun and North Bay Bohemian. He has been on the program before, and he's partnered with Peter Byrne to do several different stories over the years. Peter Byrne, of course, PeterByrne.info, no stranger to the Project Censored audience, award-winning Northern California-based journalist, combines investigative reporting with science writing. You can learn more again at PeterBurn.info, and Peter Byrne did contribute some work on these recent stories. But Will Carruthers, you have a two-part series on Railroaded. The second of those is called Train Lines, How Two Press Democrat Owners Finessed a Petaluma Real Estate Deal. They've been in hot water for various reasons over the years, and I'm afraid that it looks like we're going to be seeing even more strange behavior going on with some of these actors, what appears to be patterns of corruption. So Will Carruthers, can you tell us what's happening in this rather complicated story? The focus of the story is on the owners of the Press Democrat, specifically Darius Anderson and Doug Bosco. Anderson, we've talked about before on Project Censored, took a lot of money from PG&E after the Northern California wildfires in 2017 and founded a PG&E funded nonprofit that did some influence peddling behind the scenes. And Doug Bosco is a former congressman representing California's North Coast. And he was actually Anderson's first boss in politics. Anderson worked in his congressional office as an intern. So this story is really, you know, it's kind of deep on background because some of these things run along for decades, but essentially it's the sort of good old boy group of 
our area, the North Bay, and how some of these overlapping interests intersect and largely get left out of uh, the Press Democrat and other newspapers uh, that are owned by Sonoma Media Investments. So to go back to the beginning, there's SMART, the Sonoma Marin Area Rail Transit, is this taxpayer-funded passenger rail service. And as the name suggests, it runs in Sonoma and Marin counties, a wealthy area north of San Francisco. And the rails they use actually run 300 miles all the way to Humboldt, which is in uh, far northern California. And those freight rail lines are owned by an agency called uh, the North Coast Railroad Authority. So essentially, that agency came about because freight rail used to be quite a big deal when the lumber industry was really going full steam on the North Coast. So they had a lucrative business hauling lumber and other things down from Humboldt and into the Bay Area. That business tanked in the 70s due to declines in the lumber industry, increases in you know trucking, but also just natural decays of the uh, the lines going through a certain uh, canyon in Mendocino. Um, so essentially, when that fell apart, the state, using state and federal funds, bought out the privately owned rails and basically came to own 300 miles of of these decaying rails. And the idea was to bring freight rail back to the lines and also to maintain the right-of-ways. A string of real estate 300 miles long is kind of hard to put back together if you let it fall apart. The task of actually bringing back freight was never achieved in part because the state of California never gave the NCRA enough money to fix up the rails and the decay got worse and worse. In 2006, about 15 years after the NCRA was first formed, Doug Bosco came in. He was no longer a congressman. He was just a private attorney who worked for a lot of wealthy landowners. And he came in and co-founded a company called Northwestern Pacific Railroad Company that essentially was founded by a lot of North Coast businessmen. And the idea was to enter a public-private partnership with the North Coast Railroad Authority, again, a public agency, to basically bring back freight rail. As we lay out in the articles, basically, the NWP, Bosco's company, got a pretty friendly lease agreement with the NCRA. One of the through lines in this article is that a lot of people who worked in Bosco's congressional offices went on to work for public agencies in different capacities that then worked on rail policy that impacted Bosco's private companies. So the person who led the NCRA since 2003 is Mitch Stogner, who was Bosco's chief of staff for 15 years while he was in public office. So in 2006, the NWP got this really friendly lease that basically said they didn't have to pay lease payments for use of the tracks until they had made at least $5 million in a single year. Essentially, because of the decayed tracks on the northern half, they they never made $5 million a year. And so they paid very little in lease payments to the public agency. Instead, they 
entered this convoluted thing where the NCRA didn't have any money, so the NWP would loan them money or enter contracts with them and then get payment after, say, the NCRA. One of the ways they would raise money is by selling public property. So they would sell the public property and then pay NWP out of the profits from selling the excess property. That is where our story starts. Um, in 2018, the state transportation agency, the CTC, finally caught on and, and said, look, the NCRA is millions of dollars in debt to this private company, NWP, and it also owed a lot of money to private attorneys and things like that. So essentially, the state got fed up with this and wanted the NCRA shut down. Then that process rolled out, and that's what we cover in our stories. Well, Will Carruthers, I'm looking at it right now in front of me, and I'm wrapping my head around it. Really does remind me of Lincoln Steffens and the shame of the city series. In this case, shame of the counties, shame of the shame of the local newspaper. You write here that in this relationship with NCRA acting as landlord and NWP Co acting as tenant, you write it's a relationship in which the tenant does not pay rent because it does not net more than five million dollars a year but it has enough somehow to loan the landlord millions of dollars to cover rail maintenance and capital construction costs. So this doesn't really pass the smell test, does it? Right. I think the idea of a public agency owing money to this private company is uh, somewhat unique, troubling, and odd. So where does Darius Anderson come in? To remind our listeners who Darius is, and then around the country, they might even get curious enough to find out who the Darius Anderson in their community is, because there is one. There's often far more than one, but Northern California has this person. Who is this person, and how does he factor in here, and why does this matter? As I mentioned at the top, Darius Anderson interned for Doug Bosco in Washington, D.C., and then he went on to have sort of a lucrative private career. He first worked for Ron Burkle's private company, and then he went on to be a fundraiser for California Governor Gray Davis. And that's really where he seems to have developed his connections that he then used to found a lobbying firm, Platinum Advisors. So as Peter and I have reported in the past, Platinum Advisors has had a lot of scandals in the past. Anderson has paid various fines and settlements for things in the past. As we mentioned in passing in this article, Platinum Advisors was found to have defrauded a local Indian tribe while they were trying to set up a casino in Sonoma County. So maybe Peter can talk about that later. But Anderson's role here was that Platinum Advisors was actually hired by SMART as a state-level lobbyist. And so just as a reminder, there's various layers of conflict of interest here. First of all, Anderson owns the local newspaper, and SMART is funded by a taxpayer measure, which needs two-thirds of the vote to get funding for SMART. I think about 50% of their revenue comes from this tax measure. So having the local newspaper owner being paid by a public agency is, I think, would be surprising to to readers, especially because he worked for them for about five years. And as far as I could tell from reading a lot of their coverage of SMART, they never mentioned that the paper's owner was a lobbyist for the public agency. So anyway, 
Peter and I obtained emails through public records requests that basically showed that Anderson, working in his role as a smart lobbyist, actually did some coordinating work with Smart and Doug Bosco and a state senator's aide to actually write legislation that helped shut down the NCRA and pay Doug Bosco's NWP Co. $4 million for, for some of their debts. So that's Anderson's role in, in this. And then our second part of the article covers the work that Anderson was allowed to do outside of his state lobbying contract. So basically, state lobbying involves going to state agencies, trying to get funding in some cases, or trying to write laws that help set up a relatively new passenger rail service uh, like SMART. But in addition to doing that sort of work and working on the legislation that influenced Bosco's company, he also worked on a rail easement sale in Petaluma. I can walk through that as well. Well, Let's take a break for just a moment. I wanted to remind our listeners who are tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're speaking with two independent journalists. We're hearing Will Carruthers talking about a really fascinating story of corruption and conflict of interest in Northern California, railroaded behind the scenes of Smart's Freight Takeover. We're also going to be joined by Peter Byrne. Peter Byrne's going to have a lot to add to this story, including some interesting media twists that will spark some other conversations. But we'll continue that conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we welcome two independent journalists, Will Carruthers and Peter Byrne. Will Carruthers is a reporter for the North Bay Bohemian in Northern California. You can learn more at bohemian.com. Peter Byrne is an award-winning Northern California-based journalist who combines investigative reporting with science writing, among many other things. Peter Byrne has been on the show numerous times. You can learn more at Peter Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. PeterBurn.info. Will Carruthers and Peter Byrne, we're going to bring you into this segment of the show as well. Will Carruthers, in the first part of our conversation, you were kind of laying out the details. And I know for some of the listeners who maybe don't live in California, some of these things maybe are whizzing by, but I certainly do encourage them to go to thebohemian.com to read the articles that you two have put together because they really lay it out. And much like the other programs that I've done with you two, the devil always is in the details. The relationship between prominent business people, lobbyists, financiers, people that own the local newspapers. While this today is something that we're talking about in Northern California, this kind of unholy alliance, as Muckraker Lincoln Steffens once called it, exists in most major towns, most major cities in the United States, this kind of conflict of interest and corruption. 
And so we're hoping that the conversation today reminds people to pay attention to local politics and local affairs because they do matter. Will Carruthers, tell us a bit more about the development in this case as it was a two-part series. So the second part really covers real estate deal in downtown Petaluma, which is a city of about, I think, 60,000 people in uh, the Northern Bay Area. My very recent hometown. I live about 20 miles away, but my impression is it's in a bit of a transition in terms of real estate developments coming into downtown Petaluma. That's an understatement (laughs) and another program entirely. I just wanted to lay that groundwork because really what's at play here is this private development by this company called the Spanos Corporation came to Petaluma and wanted to build uh, 184 apartment units on the riverfront property. The problem they ran into is that these two rail agencies, the NCRA and SMART, owned this rail spur that appears to have been largely unused that ran onto the property and basically prevented the property from being developed. Because if a rail company, their rights to this, you can't just go and tear their rails out. So essentially what happened is that Spanos had to go to these two public agencies and buy the easements before they could go to Petaluma and actually work through the planning process that you usually think about. So emails Peter and I obtained basically show that even though these were public agencies, Doug Bosco and Darius Anderson, two private citizens, were deeply involved in negotiating these deals. And I'll go back to the NWP-NCRA relationship. I obtained a document that shows that uh, the NCRA, the public agency, actually approved Bosco to work on the easement sale um, on behalf of the NCRA. And then in return, Bosco's company would receive ultimately about $300,000 in debt repayment from this easement sale on behalf of a public agency. So it gets fairly complicated. And the last layer of conflict is that at the time, Doug Bosco served on the board of directors of a bank that actually owned the land that the rails ran across. And so he was wearing several hats, as I think I write in the article. Some emails show him telling Anderson what the conversations in the bank are happening. And then Anderson goes to Spanos and Smart and, you know, it's just a real mess. And so just to bring this back to media, one of the things that I found is that the Petaluma Argus Courier, which is one of the papers that Anderson and Bosco own, they're really pro-development, like a lot of local newspapers are. Real estate is a big advertiser for local media, and they tend to be pro-development in, in my experience. So what happened here is that they, in, in their coverage of this real estate deal, they did mention that the developer had to pay the rail agencies $2.4 million dollars to clear the spurs, but they failed to mention that two owners of the newspaper were deeply involved in the negotiations, seemingly on behalf of these public agencies. And then to take it a step further, they actually later on in the in the progress of covering this development, they wrote an editorial basically shaming Petaluma for not moving the planning process along fast enough when when uh, emails that we obtained really show that the rail easement process that Bosco and Anderson were involved were a major delay for the development. All right, Peter Byrne, let's bring you in here. Anderson, Bosco, their behavior. 
wildly unethical, but not illegal. Only a district attorney can bring that charge. The reporters can't do that. We can lay out enough facts that we have an effect, as we have so many times before, provided a blueprint for any district attorney to bring any number of indictments in these issues. You're not holding your breath, are you, Peter Byrne? I've been holding my breath. Yes, for quite a while <laughs> on, on a number of stories. But, and you, you two seem to have a penchant for laying out such blueprints, which is what good journalism is supposed to do. Will and I have collaborated a number of times and plan to in the future. And this story, he did the heavy lifting. And it was a really huge amount of lifting. Just to go back and fill in a few details, Darius Anderson's Platinum Advisors is one of the most powerful lobbying groups in the United States. So people in Cincinnati really should be uh, aware <laughs> that it's calling the shots in their town too very often. And Darius is a kingmaker in California. He, he services both Republicans and Democrats. It's all about the green He's kind of the punker, the water carrier for a billionaire named Ron Burkle, who's a private equity owner and a supermarket firm owner, who brought Darius uh, along, along with Doug, Doug Bosco. They, they both mentored this guy to become the, the little powerhouse that he is. They want to control the flow of news. It is not okay for a lobbyist to be controlling the flow of news. The other th matter is, is it really okay for a lobbyist who's a newspaper owner to be the behind-the-scenes Oz on millions of dollars of local real estate deals? Now, this is where you need good investigative reporting, which you cannot find in the Press Democrat or any of these other dailies, including the Chronicle or even the Los Angeles Times. They don't look into what's going on behind the scenes, especially when the Oz's are the owners of the newspapers. Now, in, in this case, the reason this was a heavy lift was because our investigation of Anderson started, uh, as Will mentioned, when uh, a superior court ruled that Anderson and his partner at the time, Doug Boxer, who's the son of uh, former California Senator Barbara Boxer, colluded to defraud the Federated Indians of the Great and Rancheria in a series of land deals when they were trying to make a casino over the last 15 years. By the time this ruling was made, the statute of limitations and any kind of criminal prosecution had been outrun. Nonetheless, the court required them to pay legal fees and some penalties to the Indian tribe. It was disgraceful. But was it covered by newspapers? Well, we we're the only one that really covered it. After the Press Democrat got one that we were doing it, they put a little blurb in about the settlement, but it made it look like the Indians were the bad guys. So controlling the news is incredibly important to people for political reasons, but also for financial reasons. Darius Anderson and Ron Burke and Bosco are hugely involved in real estate transactions throughout the Bay Area, from redeveloping Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, possibly the most expensive piece of real estate in the world, even though it's full of toxic waste and radioactivity, to this little right-of-way railway deal in Petaluma. And what it really boiled down to was that using his position as a smart lobbyist and leveraging his closeness to Doug Bosco and the state governing apparatus, Anderson was essentially able to stall the approval of this multi-million dollar housing deal in Petaluma for years by holding up the consummation of the sale of the rights of ways until they got the amount of money that they wanted. Now, just take this fact, and I don't think you, we need too much more to understand what the stakes were here. The land itself was sold by the bank, which Bosco used to be on the board of, to Spanos for $2.1 million. 
How much did the right-of-ways, about 560 feet of decrepit railroad track that wasn't even being used, how much do you think that they held up Spanos Corporation for in order to sell them the right-of-way so they could build their apartment complex that was going to house actual people? $2.4 million, more than the price of the land. This is how these people operate, and they're able to get away with it because of it's so arcane. I mean, Will and I got hundreds of pages of emails and contracts using the Public Records Act over the course of a year or so. And it takes a lot to read through every word of these vast volumes of bureaucrats speak. But the emails were really interesting because they were always like, yeah, let's get together and talk on cell phone because they don't want to commit stuff to emails because they know somebody might get them through the Public Records Act. But the record was clear enough to show that SMART had basically told its lobbyists who didn't even have a contract to do such a thing, to promulgate this deal to sell the railroad rights of ways. That wasn't okay from any measure of ethical behavior, that for a lobbyist to be in charge of cutting a deal for two public agencies that benefited his mentor's business, they didn't ever expect that anybody would uncover this rotting mackerel, this this corpse of corrupt activities that underlay the polite language of commission meetings and editorials and and nobody actually having the courage to save the emperor. Not that he has no clothes. He stole your clothes. Well, that's certainly well put, Peter Byrne. But I wanted to go back to you, Will Carruthers. You had a couple of other points you wanted to bring up. I just wanted to circle back to the media angle. One thing that newspaper folks say, or at least the PD people say, is that there's a firewall between editorial and the business side, in this case, the ownership, Anderson and Bosco. And one thing I'm really proud of in this article is that I managed to track down what appears to be a smoking gun of of actual connection between the lobbying side and a member of the editorial staff. So in the second part of the article, I obtained an email through a public records request, which is the Petaluma Argus Courier, then publisher John Burns, essentially emailing Petaluma City Manager and CCing Darius Anderson. And he says, Darius is hoping to connect with you in his capacity as CEO of Platinum Advisors, a government affairs firm representing SMART. So the Petaluma Argus Courier in its coverage never mentions that Darius is representing SMART, let alone that they're working on this real estate deal behind the scenes. And he's the owner of the paper. And they're printing editorials saying that for unknown reasons, the building of this apartment complex is being unfairly held up when it was their owner that was holding it up. That's kind of the whole trifecta that you were talking about at the beginning, the connection between the the local business interests and the pro-development editorializing and things like that. It's laid out pretty plain for anyone who wants to see it. It doesn't get much clearer than that, that this kind of collusion is happening. Will Carruthers and Peter Byrne, we're going to have you back on the program in the near future. Something tells me that you're going to have some follow-up, some other stories. And I know, Peter Byrne, we want to get into more issues on media and media corruption with native advertising and some other topics. Again, Will Carruthers, bohemian.com, Peter Byrne, peterbyrne.info. You can learn more about their work online, and we will link the stories when this program is up at the Project Censored site at projectcensored.org. In the next segment of the Project Censored show, Peter Byrne is going to stay with us and we'll talk more about these intersections between people like Darius Anderson, his lobbying group, 
the newspapers he owns. We're also going to get into some other challenges in media with Peter Byrne. We're going to talk about native advertising. So stay tuned on the Project Censored show. We'll continue our conversation on the news with journalist Peter Byrne. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we continue with one of our previous guests, independent journalist Peter Byrne. And Peter Byrne, in the previous segment with Will Carruthers, we were talking about this major muckraking expose, this sort of triangle of corruption all involving Platinum Advisors, Darius Anderson, real estate deals. You all covered that in great detail here in the first part of the program. But I wanted to extrapolate and focus a little bit more with you on the news itself. Northern California is kind of a microcosm in a lot of ways for what's happening in media around the country. Talk a little bit more specifically about some of these players, North Bay media ownership. And then I know later in the program, you want to talk to us about the very interesting and bizarre problem of native advertising. Well, as uh, Will Carruthers' uh, expose of the freight railroad, deals that were going down in, in Petaluma and, and Sonoma County showed, I mean, that was a 6,000 word story. It took like more than a year to do it, examine thousands of pages of public records. You will not see that in a, a corporate newspaper these days for the most part, at least not around here. And one of the reasons is that Darius Anderson, who we mentioned is a lobbyist who runs a group called Platinum Advisors, is also the owner of the Press Democrat, along with his mentor and business partner, Doug Bosco. And Sonoma Media Investments owns basically all the print media in Sonoma County, except for the Bohemian. And that includes the Press Democrat, the Sonoma Index Tribune, Petaluma Argus Courier, North Bay Business Journal, Sonoma Magazine, Sonoma County Gazette, which used to be kind of an all-weekly, and La Prensa Sonoma, a Spanish publication. And one sense, it's very logical for a person who's not only a lobbyist statewide and at a national level as well, but a major real estate investor to own all the print media. It's good synergy for his business stuff, but it's not good for the readers. It's not good for journalism. I'll give you a case in point. A couple of years ago at the Bohemian, Will and I co-authored a pretty deep dive into a nonprofit that Mr. Anderson had created right after the tragic fires in 2017 in, in Santa Rosa. And it was set up basically as a lobbying device to bring money to favored business people. And it was cast as a nonprofit, but it really was a, a, a lobbying organization. And we exposed it pretty well. And it caused a big stir and got like a major award from the Society of Professional Journalists of Northern California. And right as that award was being conferred, a letter started being circulated that apparently Mr. Anderson had hired Sam Singer, who is a kind of PR disaster relations cleanup guy, wrote a 15-page letter attacking our article 
on Platinum Advisors and its Rebuild North Bay nonprofit. And it didn't find a single factual error because there's not a single factual error in the entire story, but it just made all these insinuations. And it was a, a nasty piece of work that was widely circulated. It was apparently sent to the leadership of the California Newspaper Publishers Association as well, which had also given us an award along with the uh, Society of Professional Journalists. And the Society of Professional Journalists didn't blink an eye at this sort of attack on journalists, but the California News Publishers Association, which is a huge kind of advertising sharing trade group hybrid that most of the corporate newspapers in California belong to, actually reached back out to the judge that had awarded Will and I's story a major investigative journalism award and had him change his statement for doing that. His statement for doing that, which had been published, was that what we had done was the proper role of uh, Alt Weekly, which is to take on and expose the, the corporate news media in the areas in which we operate. And it gave us great kudos. Um, they reached out to this judge and he retracted that statement and it disappeared off of their website. And I kind of followed up on it and uh, they wouldn't tell me who the judge was. They, they wouldn't tell me why the statement was retracted. But shortly thereafter, the California Newspaper Publishers Association hired Platinum Advisors as its lobbyist. And according to the statistics I just got today from the Secretary of State, so they've so far paid them $150,000. I don't know what they've been lobbying for. But I think it's a problem. It's called a monopoly problem when you have not only a lobbyist and real estate investor that owns most of the print media, it's also the lobbyist for the organization that represents the interests of newspapers before the, um, the state legislature. That's not a good thing. So segueing from that, when the article that Will wrote that we just talked about in the first half of the show about how there was conflicts of interest in the payments made to buy rights of way on these freight railroad lines. So typically over the years, when the Bohemian has published a big investigative piece, it has been pretty much ignored by the, the corporate media in the state. With the exception of over the years, a newsletter called California Playbook, which was put out by the major news organization Politico, based in Washington, D.C., which now happens to be owned by the reactionary media group in Germany called Axel Springer, but that's another story. California Playbook sends out a daily kind of news aggregate feed to probably thousands of people. It's widely read in, in Sacramento and in, in the halls of power. And it's always at the top says who its sponsor was. Recently, it's been eBay, but Facebook has also been there. Banks have been there. Weapons manufacturing firms have been there. They're, they sponsored this. And for several years, it would link to investigative stories that we did in the Bohemian and, and our sister paper, the Pacific Sun. But after we did this charity case story on Darius Anderson, Platinum Advisors, and the Rebuild nonprofit debacle, suddenly they stopped linking to our stories, and they wouldn't link to our stories anymore. I complained a little bit because the way they set their thing up is they have a web scraper every day that goes and looks at the LA Times and the Sacramento Bee and the San Francisco Chronicle and picks up stories of interest, you know, often quite trivial. But every time I wanted to get one of our stories into it, I'd have to reach out to my colleagues there. So when this story about the freight railroad came out, I reached back out and I hadn't done that for over a year. And they actually did link to part one of the series. 
But then the next week when part two came out, uh, they didn't link to it. And so I, I got back in touch with them and I said, what's going on with this? Why aren't you, you know, linking to it? And um, I got no response. And so, you know, the problem is that not only is the California playbook um, sponsored by uh, major corporations with an interest in how the news is shaped, including Facebook of all things, but if you look at the business model of Politico, it's very revealing of what the shape is of monopoly news in, in our country here. What a lot of people don't know, they've heard of advertorials, they've heard of sponsored content, but they haven't heard of native advertising. Native advertising is short for alternative advertising. It is a form of advertising that came about after millions of people started using ad blockers when they were reading newspapers online. And it allows advertisers to buy news stories with bylines that masquerade as news. It's really quite shocking, but it's been going on for almost 10 years. The Columbia Journalism Review has written about it extensively. Even Wikipedia has a good thing on it. But most people don't know that when they're reading a newspaper, that could easily be a news story that was bought by an advertiser, and it's not disclosing that fact. I reached out to Politico a few months ago. I asked them, um, and I have the email right here, does Politico do native advertising? And they wrote back, oh, hi, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to our newsletter sponsorships, California Playbook, and other digital takeover and targeted digital options, we do have a full content studio that helps to support brand content and other native options. Is there a particular campaign you have in mind? Happy to chat through ideas and options with you. Well, then you probably Google my name and I never heard back. But the point is that it is not okay, on the one hand, for advertisers to be writing the news stories. More insidious and dangerous thing about it is that now people that are coming up through the reporting ranks think that it's okay. I'm going to go over some of the research that I've done on this in terms of how organizations like the New York Times, BuzzFeed, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Atlantic Magazine and others have established what they call content studios, which are in-house advertising studios in which they order their reporters and editors to work on advertising, sponsored content, and native advertising, as well as their jobs writing the regular, supposedly unbiased news. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. I'll continue my conversation with journalist Peter Byrne after this brief musical break. Stay tuned. So, Peter Byrne, what happened to that firewall that we're always told was there? 
editors and journalists for years, they would always respond to criticism that they were being too influenced by owners and advertisers, that there was a, a firewall there. Sounds like that's burned down. I don't think there ever was much of a firewall, really. I mean, you never saw, you know, the New York Times or the San Francisco Chronicle going after Macy's, you know, especially around Thanksgiving. But there was at least some kind of word service to its existence, as you just mentioned. And, you know, that's pretty much gone. I'm going to read to you from a Columbia Journalism Review article, Guide to Native Advertising, which says, Native ads take on the appearance of real news stories and are crafted by people inside news publications who want to create and spread commercial messages that don't look like traditional advertisements that overtly push product. This report clearly outlines how news outlets produce native advertising and how this practice borrows credibility from the newsroom in order to enhance the value of the ad created for clients. And it talks about the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, Condé Nast, everybody is doing it. And this entire companies like Brandforge, in a, another Columbia Journalism Review article, it says that Brandforge has 30 contracts covering 60 publishers. And then some executive says, readers like relevant, interesting local information, whether that's coming from editorial content or branded content. That's what makes native advertising so attractive. A, another industry magazine talks about Budgets are switching to native advertising where brand messages look more like regular content, sitting in the same templates and using the same formats that might be used for a standard piece of journalism or a user-generated post on social media, which means that they're also counterfeiting posts on social media. And one of the most successful examples to date, the New York Times published a 1,500-word native ad for the Netflix series Orange is the New Black, using video charts and audio to supplement text about female incarceration in the U.S., it was one of the first pieces of sponsored content generated by New T Brand Studio. That's the in-house advertising native brand studio at the New York Times. The Guardian is also creating post formats of the same similar nature, pursuing traditional approaches where journalists create content independently, but are still paid for by an advertiser. And then Wired Magazine. This is a great article on Wired. Wired so far this year has attracted 15 big brands to Wired Brand Labs, this nine-person branded content unit, including Porsche, Bank of New York, Marriott, and the U.S. Army. Wired's formula is a variation on the more aggressive effort by parent company Condé Nast, which uses its editorial staff to write its ad copy as part of its 23 Stories studio. The idea, said a Wired publisher, is to produce something that is of the same caliber of our editorial. We want the people doing this to have the wired voice. Now, this article says this inherent risk here, of course, is eroding reader trust. The idea is to avoid writer's bylines appearing on both the editorial and branded content at the same time, at the same time being the operative. It's okay, apparently, if one day the writer does a story on a fire and the next day it does a story, on, he does a story or she does a story on fire extinguishers. That got me actually interested a few years ago. I was reading the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the El Nino was coming. It's a big rainy season. And so the headline, the headline on the front page, El Nino likely to hit the state's neediest er, uh, area. And there's this huge photograph right under the headline of this guy with a hammer on a roof doing some shingling. And it says Pedro Carino of ARS Roofing, where business is soaring on the El Nino News, works on a home in Tiburon. And then there's uh, another picture of his co-worker, Diego Carmona of ARS Roofing, works on a home getting ready for winter storms. I mean, this is the front page of the Chronicle. And then you go into the story and all it talks about is 
AR roofing. There's another picture of Mr. Carino putting some shingles on this house. And it goes on and on about AR roofing. And then a couple of days later, I look at the Press Democrat. And there's Sonoma County roofing contractors are booked in the spring by homeowners worried about expected heavy rains and their potential impact rushed to ready roofs. And then there's capstone roofing at the top of the front page, right in the headline. And it goes on and on about capstone roofing and stuff like that. So, you know, I got really interested. I was wondering, you know, because I had heard about native advertising, if, if this is an example of that, because it looks like a byline news story. It just says over and over and over again, you know, for search engine optimization purposes, the name of this particular company. So I called up the Chronicle. I said who I was and that I was interested actually in starting up an online media news organization. I got in touch with one of their advertising people. I have a direct transcript of our conversation. I won't say what her name was, but she was in charge of native advertising for the Chronicle. And I said, you know, what is this native advertising I'm hearing about? How does that work? She said, well, on SFGate, that's the online version of the Chronicle. If we sell stories there, you can buy actual content or you can actually supply your own content. And then we create a package for you where your article will evergreen on SFGate. And then I said, so if I write something about my business, then does it appear as a news story of some sort? And, and she said, yeah, it would. What we have here is we've got a team that we would obviously set up a meeting with you to discuss your ideas. And then you have options of either creating the entire piece for yourself. And then our team would edit it. So it sounds like it's in SF gaytees, or we can collaborate together or we can write the entire thing for you. It's all kind of based on budget as well. And that way, with that program, we will put social media power behind it and video ads on the homepage that will drive traffic to your story. And then you can use that story any way that you want. And then I say, does it appear in the print version too? Oh, yes, it can. You know, we can definitely do a reverse print and do a full page story. The price is highly discounted when you do this program with us. It's $5,000 for a full page print piece with this program. And then she goes on trying to, to sell me with this. And then I say, eventually, with this native advertising, is there a byline on it? How does that work? She says, it looks just like regular editorial. And I said, so you can't distinguish it then? And she goes, not really. It's kind of deceiving, which is the point. We want people to think that we are writing it. Wow. Peter Byrne, that's straight from the source at the San straight Francisco Chronicle. The source. And then a few days later, I'm looking at the Chronicle again, and I've got this like news story. It says, the world's best wine comes from Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> Someone paid a lot for that. About judges saying <laughs> that the Walmart wine had an excellent freshness and was full of energy. And the article, written by a staff writer for SFGate named Melissa Pereira, the article ends, here's the bad news. Currently, the wine is sold out, meaning if you're looking to buy a bottle for yourself, you may be relegated to the black market. This is pretty unbelievable. This is an entire sub part of this industry that they're using to subsidize the papers. Yeah, actually, it's their major profit center now, according to a lot of advertising agency magazines. To give you an example, there was an article on native advertising that interviewed Audrey Cooper, who at the time was the editor-in-chief at the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of years ago, right around the same time I was making this inquiry. And their in-house division is called Story Studio. And she told this reporter that last year they produced 400 native ad, quote, stories. And this year they're on pace for a thousand more. They're trying to sell you a package. You can just do online 
or you can do a, an advanced version, which is their deluxe combination of online and print. Now that when I read newspapers, including the New York Times, I'm always got an eye out to how many times they're repeating the name of a corporation or a product selling entity in a news story. And if it's more than once, then it's probably native advertising. It's really shameless. I mean, it used to be 20 years ago, you could have an advertorial and it would have pretty big signs on it going paid advertisement. Those have gone away. And now you don't even have to have that. And the Columbia Journalism Review articles exploring this phenomena are very concerned because Pew and others have done a lot of journalism polls showing that people cannot tell the difference. This is pay-to-play made news. There's always been fake news. I mean, William Randolph Hearst, it was known as yellow journalism. Now it's just known as journalism. Peter Byrne As a lifelong journalist, a career journalist, an award-winning writer, this has to rub you the wrong way, seeing what's happening in the profession. This is the norm. This is the direction. This is the model. And this is what younger people are being taught to do. It really was annoying when I reached out to Politico. Their California playbook was started up by Carla Marinucci, who was a longtime reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. She was an access journalist. She took politicians to lunch and got pieces of gossip and then passed it off at news. You know, that's what she did. She didn't actually pretend to do much more than that. And she would usually link to my stuff because she had some regard for actual reporting. But she's gone now. Probably Axel Springer got rid of anybody with even a shred of journalistic integrity. And when you look at the playbook, it's got a lot of links to entities that are owned by the political conglomerate. And then, like I said, just the big corporate dailies and stuff. And it completely ignores community newspapers and and alt-weeklies, which are very vibrant in our state. The Bohemian and the Pacific Sun have really done leading work in investigations over the last 15 or 20 years or even longer regarding municipal corruption, environmental depredations, stuff like the freight railroad, Darius Anderson, Doug Bosco, press Democrat fiasco. But I do want to bring this around to another interesting development in Northern California, which is what's going on in San Francisco, because a few years ago, a national financial entity bought basically most of the newspapers in San Francisco. There was the Hearst-owned Chronicle, but then there was the Examiner and the SF Weekly and the Bay Area Reporter and the Bay Guardian and, and some others. And they were all bought by an organization that was more of like a private equity group that had an interest in stripping the assets out of them. And so journalism was really going downhill. But it got even worse last year when a former political consultant and lobbyist named Clint Riley, who also owns a skyscraper in downtown San Francisco and has run for mayor unsuccessfully and is always fomenting to be a power player in in California, bought the SF Weekly and the Examiner. And immediately upon buying them, he turned them into total native advertising vehicles. For instance, in February 2021, Both issues, the Examiner and the SF Weekly, feature the Dolan Law Firm. Huge ads by the Dolan Law Firm, but then it's got articles about the Dolan Law Firm, and then it's got opinion columnists by lawyers that work for the Dolan Law Firm. I don't know who the Dolan Law Firm is, but they basically were just like the stars of both newspapers on this one week. And and I guess every week it would be a different one. Now, Mr. Riley hated the SF Weekly because in 2000 and one, I think it was, maybe 2000, after he had run for mayor and spent like $4 a vote and got trounced, I did a a cover story on Mr. Riley called Who is Clint Riley Really for the SF Weekly. 
And in it, I didn't allow him to go off the record. And I tape recorded everything and hung out with him for like a week. And he even took me to his vacation house. And we went to a Warriors game. And, and he was like seducing me, he thought. And the deal was that everything would be recorded. And at one point, I even went and interviewed his mom and his dad. And he wasn't there. And when I got back, I, I called Clint up and I said, Clint, your mom said something very interesting about you. And he goes, what's that? She knows me best. I said, she said that you weren't lovable. Now, Clint assumed that was on tape. What he doesn't know until this very moment, if he's listening to this, is that actually my tape recorder was broken at that moment and it didn't record what she said, but I did write it down. So the article comes out and he has to weekly on the cover, you know, of Clint in like a leather jacket. Clint's Clint. You should go read it. It's still there, at least for the moment, as far as I know. And, and I've saved a copy of it. But a few weeks later, I was down in Los Angeles covering a story at the district attorney's office and the head PR guy came out there, some old political hack, I forget his name. And he says, I want to shake your hand. I'm like, why? He says, because you single-handedly destroyed Clint Riley's political career with that quote about his mother. (laughs) No. He said, Clint called me up after it came out and said, how much damage has been done, John? He goes, you're toast. You're never going to be able to run for office again. And indeed he hasn't. He's running his office. I fear he'll be running his daughter. Uh, But, um, he himself is not going to be running because his mother said he's not lovable, which apparently is true. So he buys the SF Weekly and the Examiner. Last month, he killed the SF Weekly. He put it out of business completely. It's gone. It's been around for years. It's done all this great work, you know, and it's just gone. The Examiner is still there. So I guess he's putting all of his resources into the Examiner. But this isn't about journalism. This is about one, making money through doing native advertising, and two, from Clint's point of view, trying to position yet another family member to make another grab for the, the morality. I'm just reminded of 60 years ago, 61 years ago, A.J. Liebling writing in The New Yorker, an essay titled The Wayward Press, Do You Belong in Journalism? And that's where we get that quote, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. And that is unfortunately the case. Journalism in the United States of America is a travesty. People said, well, we had great journalists when we did Watergate and stuff like that. But, you know, Watergate was a kind of intel operation. Woodward was a naval intelligence officer whose uh, source was that feculent Mark Felt who was feeding him his stuff, although it was true. Don't forget Bernstein wrote the 1977 Rolling Stone piece on Mockingbird. Bernstein was a great reporter. He remains a great reporter. But Woodward is just another access journalist, and he does get access. That's his thing. He can do that, whatever. I don't do that. And the problem is that either it's native advertising or access journalism, which is basically gossip. Look at Gavin Newsom. The newspapers in California all went crazy when he went to French Laundry last year during COVID and didn't wear a mask. It was like he murdered or ran down some school kids or something like that. And yeah, I mean, Gavin's an idiot and all that, but he should have worn a mask. But they didn't touch the real story on Gavin, which I've been writing about for years, which is, for example, that all of his businesses, his restaurant businesses and catering businesses and and resort businesses are incorporated in Nevada. So he doesn't have to pay state taxes. And he's the governor of California. That's that's a much much more interesting story. Well, Peter Byrne, we're out of time, but that certainly is muckraking journalism. That's investigative journalism. That's why we need it. And you've been doing it for a long, long time. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. You have a long history of important stories. We're definitely going to have you back on. I know you're going to continue to work with Will Carruthers. We'll continue to follow 
your coverage of what's happening, particularly in Northern California, around Darius Anderson, the Press Democrat, the Sonoma Media Company, and their lobbying arms. So, Peter Byrne, thanks so much for joining us. PeterByrne.info, that's B-Y-R-N-E, PeterByrne.info. You can learn more at his website. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thank you, Mickey. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Out the reach on potential fiend at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got the